All right. Well, today we are finishing our walk through the speech that uh, Jesus gave his disciples. And uh, before sending them, off, sending them off to do what he was uh, doing, which is preaching the gospel, which is the good news of the kingdom of God. And as we've gone through this passage, we've been looking at the immediate context of what it is that Jesus is telling his disciples to do, as well as the more transcendent aspects of the passage. And if you're wondering where we're at, we're going to be finishing up chapter 10 in the Gospel of Matthew, so we're at the, the last few verses there if you want to go along, follow along in the Bible. Before we get into it, though, I just want to thank everyone that's been helping out, and thanks to the worship team. Uh, it's really... I was telling you before, it's a nice groove today. It's good. It's very, very, uh, I don't know, made me feel good, like, a, like I was floating on air. So anyways, as we go through uh, this, uh, this speech that Jesus gives to his disciples, I've shared with you before that, that not only is it that it has an immediate context, but I think it also represents kind of the, the journey of faith that everybody goes through. Uh, to a certain degree, and we've talked about it in different ways, like the journey of hope, the journey of promise, the journey of value, you know, all the different uh, aspects of the speech. And this, this week, we're looking into the journey into community, or the journey into team. Community sounds like the more churchy word to use, but, but it's just also very much about team, about working together. And as you know, many of you know anyways, I'm a bit of a history geek, and I find the history behind big events to be particularly fascinating because big events require a lot of people working together. And, I, and I'm kind of and I'm fascinated by the coordinated effort that it takes to make things happen. Even though history itself usually only remembers those who are at the very cutting edge of the event. And for example, as some of you saw uh, when, uh, before we got started here, that on July 20th, uh, 1969, which was 11 days before my first birthday, uh, a crew of three men achieved a historic first, and that was that they landed on the moon. And most people know the name of the guy that, that put the first step on the moon. Uh, his name was Neil Armstrong. And probably most of you know that. Uh, some of you may know the name of the second guy on the moon, who's actually in most of the pictures, because uh, Neil Armstrong was taking a lot of the pictures, and that was Buzz Aldrin. Not a lot of people remember the third person in the crew because he never actually got down to the moon. His feet never actually touched the moon. He stayed in lunar orbit uh, around the moon, and he was, he, was in, he was in place so that when the, the astronauts came back up from the moon, they would connect with him. And uh, does anyone know his name here? Yeah, his name was Michael Collins. And, uh, and so, you, so you can imagine, like, okay, we all know the first guy. Some knew the second guy. No one knew the third guy. I ran into the second guy one time. I was at the airport, and I ran into Buzz Aldrin. And I'm sure uh, it's an event that, for him, was right up there with landing on the moon. Uh, but uh, that, that was a joke. <laughs> but because there's hardly anyone here, I, I never know if people are understanding the joke or not. But, you no, know, I ran into him at the airport. He was just... Walking by, I think he was going to, uh, to start his, uh, his little stint on Dancing with the Stars. And uh, I saw him and, and asked him if I could take a picture with him, and that's him. But even less known than Michael Collins, which is, which is a bit unfortunate that, that he's kind of lost in history, is the thousands of people that were behind this effort 
to get these two men on the moon, three men actually to the moon. In NASA, NASA records uh, estimate that about 400,000 people were involved in the Apollo project to get people on the moon. 400,000. Now, some of them were, were controllers, and, and you've seen in the movies pictures of, of these controllers and all that. And if you look closely at the picture, I know you don't have time, there's men and women here. There's uh, people of different races here. It was actually cutting edge in a lot of ways. But then there's also the, the engineers, the scientists, the mathematicians, the welders, the, even the people that catered the food uh, for all these folks. 400,000 people to get two people on the surface of the moon. And it's a pretty amazing, the, the effort that, that took place here and the teamwork that took place. And if they didn't have all these pieces in place, then this historic event never would have happened. And in fact, only 12 people have ever been on the moon, at least as far as we know. Only 12 people have been on the moon, and yet you had almost half a million people supporting the effort. And in the scripture that we're uh, going to be looking at today, Jesus talks about this. Because Jesus himself, even though he was the very word of God made flesh and dwelling among us, which this passage explains who Jesus was, it says, who Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. People don't understand that verse. It's saying that Jesus was already in the position of the authority of being God. He didn't have to grasp for something. He already had it. But then he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made to human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When we hear about the mission of Jesus going from heaven to earth for the sake of our salvation, he is that cutting edge. He is the tip of the spear. But as you read the gospel stories, we see that he had support for example, in the birth stories, you have the support of the angels. The angels are announcing his coming, preparing people for his coming. Also, upon his crucifixion, the angels ministered to Christ as he was going through that difficult time of facing the cross. You had human support, his mother Mary. Joseph was a support there for him as well. He also had his disciples as a support. He had many people around him as support. And when we think of the disciples, we generally think of the twelve. But there was lots of other people around him. Some were called disciples as well. Some were just folks around him. Uh, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we hear about this. Uh, there's some women that were singled out as people who supported his ministry. It says, while he was being crucified, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseas and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem to Jerusalem were also there. So Jesus had people around supporting this bringing of hope into the world. The Apostle Paul, he famously named people who were helping him. Uh, particularly in the book of Romans. If you read the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, he lists a whole bunch of people. Uh, he lists a woman named Phoebe. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were a couple. Uh, some of these names I'm just going to brutalize, but that's okay. Epentinus, Mary, Andronicus, and Junicus, Ampletus. 
we've talked about when we went through the, the, the book of Romans that some of these names are nicknames, and Amplitus just means the big guy, and Urbanus means the city guy, and Statius, Apelles, the whole household of Aristobulus, Herodian, the household of Narcissus, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they were sisters, Perseus, Rufus and his mother, Astringicus, Philagon, Hermes, Patrobus, Her, uh, another Hermas, Philiogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus. And then he also sends greetings from the people who are actually with him. So these are people that are in, in Rome that he knows that he's sending us to. And then the scripture also says, Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as does Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my relatives. And then this is an interesting little verse. The guy who's the scribe puts his name in there. He goes, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So this is the name of the scribe that, that, that wrote it. Uh, Paul was dictating it out loud. This guy is Tertius, this guy that wrote it. Gaius, whose hospitality and I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who's the city director of public works. And if you go to Corinth today in Greece, they have this guy's name. It's on a stone that they found in a paving stone. They think that this building, a building with his name on it was repurposed to be uh, paving stones. And this guy's name is on there. This is a, a physical link from the scripture to history that you can find if you go and visit the city, the ancient Corinth today. Uh, and our brother Quaterius sent you their greetings. So you can see that as this gospel ministry of Jesus Christ is, is going on, it takes a lot of people. And there are a lot of people in support. There's the names that we know, like Jesus and Peter and Paul, just like there was Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and, and to a lesser degree, Michael Collins. But then there's that layer who supported the ministry that we don't know a lot of their names. Some of them are written down here in, in, uh, in the letters of Paul. But these are just a few. There's, there's hundreds and thousands of names that we don't know. And throughout Christian history, there are some names that we know, but there are many, many more that we don't know. And yet, without all the unnamed people, we wouldn't be here today. If the gospel message had not been supported, not just by the people who are out front, like the apostles and, and, and guys like Paul and and throughout history, like Irenaeus and, and other, you know, people that are in history, without the people that are supporting them, we wouldn't even know about them. And so Jesus, as he's sending the people, his disciples out two by two, he says this to them. This is the final thing he says as they go out. He says to them, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And anyone who gives a cup of cold water to these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. And then going into chapter 11, after Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So Jesus stays around the towns of Galilee and the other disciples go out in a further area and share the gospel of Christ. And there's a couple of things that I found profound in this little passage here. First of all is the one that about receiving. You know, very often we think that unless we are uh, somehow receiving a direct uh, contact from God that there is no 
there's nothing that we can ever really learn about God. But that's not really true. Jesus says, anyone who receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. It's the Father. And the point behind that is that very often we can learn deep lessons and come to understand God very deeply by being in contact with one another, by learning from one another. I kind of see, I see God as being like a multifaceted diamond. And I only have the capability within the way I'm made, the, the way I'm hardwired by God, just my, my background, my life experience. There's only a few facets of God that I can really grasp. Maybe I really grasp the idea of grace, or I really grasp the idea of faith. But I don't have a really strong grasp on something like authority, for example. But it's by knowing other believers who understand God in, in, in the way that he has made them that I can understand different facets of God more deeply because I understand how you see God. And I'm not talking about some kind of you know, totally out there thing like, well, I understand God is, you know, Zeus, or I understand God is, you know, some other pagan thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we understand the same God, but we have different aspects of God that we come to know more deeply just because of who we are, and we can teach that to one another. And it's important to understand that, that when we receive one another, we're receiving the one who sent that person into our life, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, when you receive me, you receive the Father. So there's a value just into knowing one another and walking with one another in faith. We're going to grow more deeply in our understanding of God as individuals if we come to understand him together. And then he says this, whoever receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. I find it interesting here that Reward isn't based on titles or roles. Those who support the prophet are given the prophet's reward. It's not just the prophet and then there's a, there's a lesser reward for the supporters. And, those, and it's not just the righteous person that gets the reward and then there's the lesser, lesser reward for the supporters. It's the same. They're walking in the same place. And the one who's out front isn't seen as more worthy of reward than those who are supporting. And the Apostle Paul understood this. This is why he talks about us being a body in Christ. In the scripture that Danny read, we're a body in Christ. And no one part is really more important than another. And when one part suffers, it all suffers. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. Now, some parts are more prominent than others. I think when, you know, when we consider each other, when I think of someone that I know in the church... I don't think of their feet. I tend to think of their head, their face. When I see them in my mind's eye, that's what I see. But it doesn't mean that their feet aren't important. When I think of someone in a church, I don't generally think of their hands. I think of their face. But it doesn't mean their hands are less important. We're a body in Christ. And this becomes a struggle sometimes because, because we're sinful and our human nature is sinful. We have a tendency to want to be in a place of prominence, or we sometimes resent people who are in a place of prominence. And very often we measure value in prominence. How, how much do people know you? How important are you? Do people see you as important? Now for sure, leadership has a lot to do with being seen. You know, if you want to be considered a leader, you have to be seen but how much of that is, is our value versus God's value? 
when I was a young believer, I thought that everyone that had a deep faith in Christ should become a full-time pastor or somehow a missionary or somehow vocational minister. I believed this. And I couldn't understand when people who were dedicated in their faith didn't feel a calling to full-time ministry. And I was grateful that I learned early in my Christianity that this is just simply not the case and to value people regardless of what their call is. My roommate was a guy named Jamie Slippy. He was one of the greatest guys I, I ever knew. He was very down-to-earth. He came from a humble background. He came from a bit of a broken background. But he was very smart, very devoted to his faith. He was an engineering student. He, he had dreams of being a mechanical engineer. He, he, wasn't, he didn't have a lot of money. In fact, at times he would run out of money, and so he'd have to drop out of school for a semester, work as a welder, and then he would come back to school and continue with his education. And I admired him greatly. And he was, he was one of these guys that just loved you know, being an engineer. He was definitely, he just kind of has that brain. He used to run into my room after some, He'd been working on some math problem for hours, and he'd be all excited that the answer was zero. And I used to just kind of look at him, you know, I'm not a math guy. And if I had spent hours working on a math problem, which would never happen, and I found out the answer was zero, I think I'd be a bit irritated with my professor. But Jamie found that kind of thing fascinating. And he was deeply involved with a, a campus Christian group called the Navigators. They were very much into scripture memory and, and discipleship. He and I went to the same church, and he's just a guy that I really admired. I admired his intellect. I admired his personality. I admired his hard work ethic. And so when I started feeling this calling of God in my life, I assumed that someone like Jamie would certainly feel the same calling. Because in my mind, if God's going to be calling a doofus like me, how would he not be calling this guy, who I looked up to in many ways? How would he not be calling Jamie into full-time vocational ministry. And we used to talk about it, and Jamie was very clear that this was not, this was not the, 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 the calling he had in his life. And I did not understand that uh, in my first years as a Christian. This is about my third, maybe fourth year as a Christian. I did not understand how he could not feel this calling. And to be honest with you, I kind of questioned, well, he, maybe he's missing it. Maybe he's missing his calling. But Jamie was very, very clear. He's going to be an engineer, and he, and he finished his bachelor's degree, went on and got his master's degree, and, uh, and went, into the, went into life as an engineer. He's, he continues to be an engineer. He works at a, an aircraft manufacturing company that designs planes to fly doctors and missionaries into remote areas. But I soon discovered, as I entered into full-time ministry how vital the strong supporters like Jamie are to a church. Because these are folks that might not often speak from the pulpit, or they're not called to pastor a church. But the mission of the church to reach the lost and to make disciples, it cannot be accomplished without them. Because they, on a very practical sense, they make the income and they tithe so that we can meet the financial necessities that are required for the church to fulfill its mission. So one... There's just that very practical thing of the fact that these are the income makers for the church. But on top of that, on top of their secular jobs, where they act as salt and light in the world, on top of their own family commitments, Jamie and his wife had, I think, five kids. 
on top of these family commitments where they raise up that next generation of faith, on top of their activity in the community where a lot of folks are coaches or, they, or they're involved in community, uh, other community aspects and services, on top of the ministries. These are the folks who are also our Sunday school teachers. They're the folks that are our administration team people. They're the folks who are our elders. They're our IT folks. There are home group leaders and coordinators. There are deacons in every other ministry that we have in the church. These are the folks that do these things. Without them, we don't have it. If we don't have our IT team, then this is, this is what we'd be going, this is it. You folks, there's no, there's no one else hearing a message. And if we didn't have the people who are willing to coordinate what it takes to even have us come and do this, making sure things, folks are spaced the way they need to be spaced and following all the regulations, which isn't coming from me, because I can't organize this stuff. Organization is not my strong suit. We wouldn't even have this time together. The church wouldn't happen unless there was this team involved in it. The church wouldn't happen unless you had this community working together. And as I became a, a pastor and began to, to be the one that is kind of out front and getting sometimes a lot of the praise. Oh, you're a man of God. I sometimes, every time I hear that, I have to be honest with you, I'm not super comfortable being in the center of attention. It's, a, it's an odd thing that God makes me, put me into a pastoral role, role. It's odd to me anyway. But I'm not really comfortable with that because in my mind I know that none of this would be happening if it were just up to me. And I'm not the church. I'm just part of the church. I'm not the entire body. I'm just one part of it. And I've leaned heavily on my brothers and sisters through the years. And since my university days, I've always found that there are people who are in the role within every church I've been a part of, the roles that are supportive and necessary. And the people that are the most supportive and necessary are like Christ, in that they don't grasp for leadership. They don't feel like they're in competition. I've had people who feel like they have to compete with me. From the very first time I walked into a church as a senior pastor, within two weeks I ran into people that wanted to compete for that position. And all I can tell you about people that want to compete for that is because they want the power. They want something that they see as prestigious. They don't want all the, the, the stuff that goes with it that's no fun. But in that competition, all they end up doing is slowing down and stopping the ministry that God wants for that church. And it happens at every church. You have some folks that see position and they see roles as something that they covet. And to them, it sort of defines them as valuable people. And they end up getting in the way because they're competing instead of helping and supporting but the ones who are the most supportive are just these people who are very generous. They have gener generosity of heart, generosity of spirit, generosity of grace, generosity of forgiveness, and even generosity in material support. When Cindy and I first arrived here in IBCD almost 10 years ago, we weren't given a clear understanding about the costs involved in moving from, Germany, uh, from the U.S. to Germany. And to be honest with you, Cindy and I got here, we, had, we, we were in a financially difficult situation. 
because we were not very well prepared. We, were, we asked and asked, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? The, the information we were giving was not sufficient. And we were in a tough, tough place. And there was someone in the church who just generously said, I know you're in a tough place. He gave us a certain amount of money and said, here, you don't have to pay this back. Just use this to get on your feet so you can get moving. There was that generosity of spirit that was here at IBCD when we came here. There was also a spirit of those that wanted to compete and wanted to stop things, wanted to make sure I didn't get too big for my britches. And so these things are in every church. And who you are is really your choice. Where do you stand in that place? I'm not saying that, that it's wrong to ever question leadership, that it's wrong to ever want to, to ask questions or hold things accountable. That is perfectly fine. But do you have a generous, generous spirit in it? Or are you just trying to make sure that someone doesn't get too far ahead of you? And in this church, in IBCD, I've had tremendously supportive people. And a lot of you are here today. And I appreciate every one of you. I really do. Because if it weren't for many of you, like I said, this time, this difficult time that we've been in this whole corona thing, could have been disastrous. But instead of it being a disaster, I think it's giving us the opportunity to rethink who we are as a church, how we want to express our goal of reaching the lost and making disciples, maybe tearing down some things that needed to be torn down so that we can rebuild things in, the more, in a model that is different, that is more compatible to what God is doing in the world today. And I look forward to us all being a part of that because we're in this together. And he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And anyone who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive the prophet's reward. And I don't, I don't consider myself a prophet. I don't consider myself a particularly righteous man. But if there's such a thing as a pastor who receives a pastor's reward in the great, you know, beyond when we stand before God, I assume it's going to be the same that those who support the pastor will also receive a pastor's reward. And I want to thank you for your support over the years as we're coming up on, on 10 years. I want to thank you for that. I want to uh, affirm you in it. I know I don't say things very often. I'm not a very emotionally demonstrative person. But I do thank you. And I thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do. And look forward as we continue to walk together. Because as long as we walk in unity with our common master who gave people to be followers, gave people to be pastors, gave people to be teachers, gave people to be administrators, gave people to be, you know, all the different roles that we need in the body. That promise is that together we receive the same reward in Christ because we are one body. And that one body crosses the final finish line together. The one body rejoices in Christ together. The one body receives the reward together. And so thank you for all of you that have been very helpful over the years. And some of you are saying, well, I haven't done very much. That's not the point. The point is if you fulfill your role, then you're in that body and you're doing what's important. And some of you may have not felt thanked enough. I understand that. So I want you to know, I appreciate it. I see it. I'm grateful for it. 
And I want to continue to be that person walking together with you as we continue in unity through this difficult time into better times as a church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you remind us as we are sent out, wherever it is, out is, in our life and in our world, that you're with us. But not only are you with us, but you provide us with the, the fellowship of believers, the companionship of heart and of mind and of vision. And Lord, as we continue to walk through this time, a difficult time that Corona has been, there's also been within it a surprising blessing. And I imagine each one of us could say something about it that was a bit of a surprise and that it was a good thing that we weren't expecting, that it hasn't all just been doom and gloom. And Father, as we consider our place before you, some of us are kind of on that more prominent edge. Some are in that very strong, supportive role. Some are trying to still figure out where they're going to fit in and how they're going to help. But Lord, as we consider these places, may we never lift up ourselves too high, but may we not place ourselves so low as to think that we're useless. That somewhere in the middle, may we be reminded that we are all part of the body of Christ. And that in this time and place right now, there's a certain prominence for some. There's a supportive role in others. Personally, Lord, you know I look forward to the day when I'm an old man and some younger person is in the lead and I can support them with all that you've given me over the years and all that you've taught me through friends and, and other church members, Lord, the things that you've taught me, I can try and pour into that young person. And may we rejoice in the part that you give us knowing that our reward isn't based on our title or how much prominence we have, but it's based upon our faithful response to your calling. And I thank you for guys like Jamie and for women uh, like uh, well, so, so many people I could name who may not be seen by others, but who are that backbone of their churches around the world in all the different continents. You told us that we are to, are, we are to, to go into all the world, from Jerusalem to Samaria, to, to Judea to Samaria, to all the world, and and these are the folks whose names we don't know who support the churches today. And Lord, we pray that you would bless them today. And may they know of their vital importance and of their high regard that you hold them in, that their reward is equal to anyone who is out front because they're faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.